imposter behavior. Now, certainly Joe could fully be reinstated into the church if he would repent, walk with Jesus. There's no doubt, which I know of a church uh, in the Midwest, actually, that walked through a corporate executive that had embezzled and walked with that particular individual through repentance and full reinstatement into the church. So it can be done. What I'm saying is the church is concerned with the behavior of its members. That is biblical. And what else I'm saying is, is to commit to a church that is unconcerned with the ethics of its members is to dilute church to the point that I don't know that in any meaningful way it carries the biblical connotation of what the ecclesia of God, the assembly of God's people, the covenant members of a local church is. The Bible makes clear that we are to be certain things together that we really can't be by ourselves or with just us for and no more. This is what the context is, I believe, for what it is that the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth. And this is fourth letter, the second letter in our canon, comes to us as 2 Corinthians. And so let us pick up in the middle of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 with 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 16. The word of the Lord says, But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner. He is my fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the church, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. May God bless the reading of his word and minister grace unto the hearers. As we read from God's word this morning, we embed ourselves in a text of scripture that has a context of the Corinthians having once given to the relief of the poor Jewish believers that didn't have very much of anything. They weren't as poor as the Macedonians, but the Corinthians were richer than the Macedonians and richer than the Jewish people. And the Corinthians had stopped for some reason. They had stopped collecting for the Jewish believers. They had stopped their collection. And Paul is imploring them, I want you to start it again. And Titus is responsible for this exhortation going forward to the church at Corinth and is responsible for the, in part for the delegation or the envoy that will maintain the integrity of transporting that gift from Corinth over to Jerusalem to help the saints at Jerusalem. Now, they had Romans roads, but they didn't have uh, planes, trains, and automobiles like we do today. And so to set yourself in the context of the first century where Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, there was some need for there to be fiduciary responsibility with the envoy that would carry this money. Uh, The context of 2 Corinthians makes clear, if you were to read it cover to cover, that Paul has been uh, maligned by some of the other folks in the region that claim to teach spiritual things. Some of his, uh, the people would call into question 
uh, his ethics and what he was trying to do. And so Paul is saying, I'm above reproach. The Lord knows I'm above reproach, but I'm so concerned with what people understand me to be that I don't, I want to remove any kind of doubt about the integrity of the process of your giving reaching its determined destination, reaching where it's supposed to be. And so it's, in short terms, it's fiduciary responsibility. That's, that's what's going on here. And if you take the context of this, what he's telling to the Corinthians is, Titus is going, and then there's an unnamed brother from the region, a brother preacher that's going with the envoy that's going to take the funds to Jerusalem. And so there's that uh, part of the delegation or the committee or whatever you want to call this group. And then there's a third unnamed man as well. The second and third are unnamed. And he seems to also be from Paul's cadre of people. And the commentaries run wild on who these people might be. In short, we don't know. They're unknown brothers. The second and third brothers are unknown. But notice that one of them was very well known to them as a preacher of the gospel that they trusted. And another one they would have known and would have been somebody that had worked and had been tested. And as well as Titus, who obviously, I mean, there's a book named after Titus in the New Testament. He obviously is a person that was known to have integrity in his dealings. He had been tested and he was an apostolic associate, an associate to the apostle Paul. And he was carrying this letter and he was the type of person that you could trust. And so it says here, if we, if we look at this text, it says that there is fiduciary responsibility, at least it, it intimates that, by the way that this is handled. So let, let's consider the concept of integrity in giving today. And let's take it, as we're looking at this, this concept of integrity in giving today, let's take it on three different parts. The first, let's look at verses 16 and 17, and let's see the integrity of passion, the passion of individuals. Secondly, let's look at verses 18 through 21, and let's see the integrity in the process of giving. So passion and process. And then thirdly, let's look at verses 22 to 24, and let's look at the integrity in partnership with people in giving. So we see passion, process, and partnership. Verses 16 and 17, verses 18 through 21, and then verses 22 to 24. So let's take it on its parts today, shall we? Let's look at verses 16 and 17 afresh. They're short. I can read them again. Thanks be to God. So he's starting a new section in the letter. But thanks be to God. It could be grace be to God. Harris, thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus. So did Titus put this into his own heart or did God put it in his heart? God put it in his heart, didn't he? When we have good things in our heart, who put it there? God put it there. We don't put it there ourselves. We're wretched people, pervasively depraved. We need God's intervention in our lives. So thanks be to God, because God put in the heart of Titus this same loving concern, this earnest care, as it's described three times in this section. He is concerned earnestly, same as the Apostle Paul is concerned for the church at Corinth. Now, you might ask yourself in reading this, what are they so concerned about? I mean, they're asking for money, aren't they? I mean, shouldn't the concern be the other way around? Well, you'd have to have been here for last week's sermon and read the verses above it. What we find, just in summary from last week's sermon, is that mine and your giving patterns is an indicator of where our heart is. How we outflow the resources that God entrusts to us is an indicator of spiritual things. It's Shorthand, Matthew 6.21 says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we talked about this was last week's sermon. So I, I feel the need to sum that up briefly because here it's, it's, under, it's under, the, under the water line. It's there. Thanks be to God because Titus' heart 
has the same kind of care for you that Paul has in that he wants to talk about spiritual things, including all the grace gifts, including giving with them. It, it's not like it's a taboo subject. As a matter of fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 says, we want you to know about the giving of the Macedonian churches. We want you to know. We want to be clear about their testimony. We want their testimony to reverberate in Corinth because your giving patterns is important to your spiritual health. And so that's kind of an odd way to look at giving. Like I thought people just begged for money and then they got it or not, and the person that gave it was a really good person. Actually, the Bible says in Acts 20, 35, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. So if your concept of blessing is always receiving, it's always consumption, then you have a diminished view of blessing. You have an unbiblical view of blessing if you believe that always receiving is more blessed than ever giving. Now, sometimes, in fact, we do have to receive. We come on hard times, don't we? Sometimes we need, we need a hand up. We need help. And the church is definitely, there's plenty of biblical data about that. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what's going on to the, the relief to the saints in Jerusalem. They need monetary help. So it's not like somehow they're lesser Christians because they're receiving. It's just the concept is in the Bible that we should desire to be givers as Christ gave himself for us. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 15 frames this whole subset about giving in this, in this book by declaring Christ's life as an example. He says that Christ, in order to be incarnate, in order to take on flesh, he had to leave the richness of heaven in order to come down to the, the poverty of earth. Like we are in poverty here, it's, I mean, in every way compared to heaven, where, there, where there's no sin where everybody knows about Christ's lordship, where everybody knows about the goodness of the Godhead, where, where, where things are right, right? We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven because heaven's rich, right? So we need to, we need to think about the heart and about the blessing of being preached to about our need to flow our money in ways that are generous and not just self-serving. And I got to tell you, we would be the anomaly in the North American church if we caught this message. Because statistically, by and large, churches relatively, almost exclusively give nearly everything that they get to themselves. Almost exclusively. The idea of outflowing funds to help someone else or to be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves, it, well, it's a very spiritual concept. It's a very spiritual concept. And I'm pleased to pastor a church where there's a, a good number of people that understand that. And I understand that from Scripture that God did that in your heart like God did that in Titus's heart. Like you didn't do that for yourself. And so we have to always put on a humble hat when it comes to where our heart is with regard to giving. Titus has the same concern with, as Paul. And Paul really has the same concern as Jesus because Jesus is having come down and glory filled our soul. Jesus is from rich to poor that we might have salvation. And that really should be our mentality. We, we want our hearts to be so laced with messages from God, from Scripture, and with biblical theology that when we look at what we have in our pocketbook, in our wallet, in our bank account, we say, God, how much of your work can I do with what you've given me? What can I do with this? And, and that's not so much a dollar amount as it is a heart. 
God loves a cheerful giver, but that's next week, talking about the cheerfulness of giving. This week is about the integrity of giving, and this first point in verses 16 and 17 is the integrity of your passion, your passion, your passion for what Christ wants you to be passionate about. Look at verse 17. He not only, Titus, that is, didn't just accept the apostles' appeal to have a heart for giving and to carry that message to the church at Corinth afresh and restart their generosity and giving, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. So it's not just that he accepted the appeal grudgingly. It's that he, of his own accord, he wants to go to them and further this messaging for the good of the Corinthian souls. Friends, to, to tie up this, this subpoint with a ribbon, you cannot be spiritually full of health if the concept of where your money flows is off the table when it comes to discussing spiritual things. Your finances is a huge indication of where your heart is. Like in the Bible, it's, it's one of the only places. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful. So one of the only places we get like a real indicator test, like a test light in a car I talked about last week, one of the only places you get that kind of, of finitude about where your heart is is from where your treasure is. Because where your treasure is, there your heart is also. It's one of the, it's one of the, the rare blessings of self-knowing that God gives us is, is, where our, is taking an assessment of where our treasure is. And so the, the integrity of your passion, where is your heart? Take your place among the churches in in the expression of love for the saints, and especially those who desperately need it. Take your place. Don't, don't leave it to someone else. You should have a fear of missing out. It's a blessing to be able to be a part of giving. We have covenanted together as givers, and we need to finish in our giving. The Bible says that you are the light of the world in Matthew chapter 5. A city set on a hill cannot be Hidden, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So th- th- there's a sense in which they should see, not, not your individual giving, like that's Matthew 6, to be in violation of, of a separate set of, uh, within the Sermon on the Mount where it says our giving should be done in secret. Surely, what you put in that plate today, you shouldn't be like, ah, can, I get, can I get 100? Can I get 200? Can I get 300? Can I get 400? Can I get 50? How about 455? Like it shouldn't be like, I'm the one that's got this and I've got, it's not like that. But this text says, I believe in Matthew 5, it dovetails in with 2 Corinthians 8, that our corporate witness, regardless of whether you're the widow's mite or you're the well-off fella or fellette, our corporate witness to the watching world should be a light on a hill. Like they should look at us and be like, man, them some generous people. I can't believe such a small number of people does all that. That's just, and that's, that should be, I think that's how you jive Matthew 5 and 6, otherwise it would seem to, to go against one another. And so it says here, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's citing Matthew chapter 5 in light of, uh, of this text. And so, as I've said, the first point is we must exercise integrity in our passion. We must examine our passion, ask God to give us a passion for the things of which he is, is passionate about, and that is taking care of his people. And we are his, his means of doing so. Uh, it, it says in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 4, it talks about how what we do is done in the sight of men. It's right before Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and in all your ways acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. Right before that is Proverbs 3, 4. And, and in summary, it, it says that we are to live in a way that we know people are watching, that they see us. 
That is precisely what's being picked up on. Literally, most scholars believe that this text is summarizing and citing indirectly Proverbs chapter 3, verse 4, that people are watching you. The integrity of the enterprise is important, and we're going to certify it with these respected brothers carrying your gifts to make sure it gets to where it goes. With fiduciary responsibility, he sends this delegation to ward off all suspicion that he's somehow using the collection to line his own pockets. The parallel to the Gentile envoys accompanying offerings to Jerusalem, Paul Barnett helps me with this, is Philo and Josephus. Philo reported the practice of sending envoys of the highest repute with the yearly offerings from from the Jews that were scattered for the temple treasury. So there is this willingness, it appears, for at least on this teaching in 2 Corinthians 8, there's this willingness that we need to have as local churches to adapt common practices of fiduciary responsibility so long as those practices do not contradict the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should act with our funds in such a way in the, that the, when the watching world looks at us, that they look at us and they say, I don't know if I agree with their mission or not, but man, they sure are above board. I mean, them people, they, they practice fiduciary responsibility. There's integrity in what, they, what, they're, they're, what we see. We see them as a city on a hill, as a light to the world. Uh, we see that that their light is shining and their good works, are, we can see it. And perhaps then, then in turn, in time, they will give glory to God. And, and there are verses in Romans and in Peter that indicate something that is similar. Second point is integrity of process. We aim at what is honorable, 2 Corinthians 8 says. We aim at what is honorable. Integrity of process. Look with me at verse 18 down through 21. With Titus, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. So we might say this is a preacher of some note. He's known. I guess that's not evidently sinful. At least it doesn't call it out as such. I guess it can be an idol. But if you got a preacher that people recognize in the region as a, a faithful preacher, I don't know that it's a, it's a bad thing for a, a, a preacher to have some sense of, of fame with a little F. As long as he's lifting up Christ and he realized that, that you know, he's, he's not the big deal, I suppose it's okay. I don't know. I was reading this and thinking through that. Maybe I'm wrong. You can correct me over soup lunch if you want to today, if you think I'm wrong about that. But it appears to me reading this, they're sending a brother who's famous for the preaching of the gospel, and it doesn't seem to be a bad thing. Verse 19. And not only that, but he has been appointed or elected, semantic range of meaning for the word, elected by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered or administered or deaconed or served out, same word family, by us. So they're doing a diaconal type function here. Uh, And elders can do that, by the way. For the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. So there's a showing of their goodwill that they want people to see. Verse 20, so we take this course so that no one should blame us. So this is people watching. No one blames us about this generous gift, this liberal gift that's being administered or deaconed by us. And so this is their aim. This is the, the, the marrow of the second point about integrity of process. For we aim at what is honorable. We aim at what is honorable. That is our aim. We look at what's honorable. And so far as the world's fiduciary practices don't contravene the gospel, we're willing to do those things. Uh, you know, audits and, and, and uh, reviews and, and reporting to the members, things like that. We do those things. We're willing to do those things in, in order that no one should legitimately be able to blame us, that we aim at what is honorable. And it says not only in the sight of the Lord, but particularly picking up on Proverbs here, as I said earlier, but also in the sight of men, verse 21 says. So not just in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. So th- this, th- this is a place where um, the popular wisdom of, uh, well, I don't care what people say about me. I don't care. That dog won't hunt here. 
But the idea that we don't care what people say about us is, is hogwash to this. Like, we're supposed to care what they say at some level. Now, you can also fall in violation of Galatians 1, where it says very clearly, especially with regard to justification by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone, you could, you could say very, very clearly with regard to the gospel, the core of the gospel, that if I was still trying to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of God. So we can't be people pleasers at our core. But also the tension there in Scripture is right here. We can't just say, I don't care what them people think about me. We're supposed to live lives that are so exemplary, so filled with integrity, that when the watching world looks at us, that they want to praise the God that we praise. Like That's the warp and woof of the, the pulling the text together. So there's a kind of people-pleasing that is devilish, to be sure. But, but that's not what this text is addressing. It's addressing... If, if you have a concept that you don't care what the world thinks of us, like you don't care about our witness, you need course correction. That is bad philosophy for the church because this text tells us at least, at least if nothing else, we can take for sure that he's aiming to be honorable. He's aiming to be honorable. People would see honor when they see the practices of the church and to be sure, mainly by the other church members, but also by the watching world. The inference is there in this text. And so Titus and the preacher brother and the, the, the earnest brother, if it's not known either, they're, they're, taking, they're going to take these gifts to make sure they get to their destination. And the Apostle Paul is, is voluntarily taking on this practice of fiduciary responsibility that Philo, at least, says in his writings during the time of the early church that was common amongst the peoples in that region to send an envoy to make sure that money gets where it's going and to make sure that fiduciary responsibility is practiced. So there's this process that people see that commands, demands integrity, demands integrity. And these people had a part, had a say, the members did, in the process. It seems that they, they chose or elected this second brother, the, the one right underneath Titus in this text, the first unknown brother in this passage. They wanted this person to go with the envoy. And it seems that Paul had no problem with that. I mean, he could have just played his apostle card, right? I write scripture. I'm a man of integrity. I know what God thinks about me. I've already told you that. So guess what? No, I'm going to take the money and you're going to deal with it. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't pull the trump card there. He says, we together aim at what is honorable in the Lord's sight. So this is, he sees fiduciary responsibilities, not an admission that, that he might somehow need to be checked himself or that, that he might be doing something wrong, but he sees it as an opportunity to develop the trust, to pull together the trust with the members of churches in different cities to be able to say, you know, that is, a, that, that is an honorable way of handling things. And our confidence has just gone from like nine to 10 now. It's gone from here to there. So there's care taken along those lines to make sure that there is integrity in the process. And we, we've, we've all known the damage, if we think hard, that has been done when, when fiduciary responsibility is not an important aspect to the life of an organization, let alone a church. Amen? And we've seen that. It's, a, it's the news cycle. We've seen that. And we want to be the people that are exemplary. We aim at what is honorable. We want to be people that are exemplary in modeling that we have forethought in how we handle uh, money. I mean, at the end of the service today, we're going to take up an offering. After I finish preaching and um, after the Lord's Supper, we're going to take up an offering, and there'll be, there'll be four ushers that pass the plates, and then they're going to take that back. And I suppose if you were to give online or something, that would be a different process altogether. That would be handled online. But they're going to take those plates, 
to the office. They're going to secure them in a way that they can't be compromised. And then there's going to be a, a group of people that counts that money so that it's not just one person that counts it. And then after that, those totals, cash and checks, are going to be secured as well. I won't tell you exactly where because that wouldn't be helpful. They're going to be secured. And then the treasurers will recount the money to make sure that the cadre of people that counted after the cadre of people that carried, like didn't get it wrong or there's nothing that lacks responsibility. And then the deposit's made. And then once it's deposited, you know, you'd have to, that, that, that gets at least through that much of it. Now, is it, is it totally impossible for a wolf to grab a 20 out of that plate between here and there. I guess it's theoretically impo- it's possible theoretically. I mean, at some level, we're operating with some basic trust, right? But it's not blind trust. Like, it'd be kind of hard to do, and a person would have to be absolutely sinister, and they would have had to live a pattern of life to this point that we would trust them coming down here and grabbing those plates and collecting the, the, the Lord's offering. So it would, take, it would take some doing. See, so I'm not saying foolproof, like there's no way that... Mount Vernon Baptist Church could ever, ever, ever have something go wrong with it with money. That's impossible. In a Genesis 3 fallen world where there are people, there are sinners, where there are sinners, there can be sinister people that do sinister things. I can't make that kind of statement. Here's what I can say. It is very important that we as a church, and any church for that matter, take the extra time like Paul takes for fiduciary responsibility. Do you agree with that? That much makes sense, right? That there's process and that we follow the process and we don't shortchange the process. And, and sometimes it's even painstaking to follow the process. I'm sure it would have been easier for Paul to just do his thing than bring these other unnamed brothers into this. But these unnamed brothers are important because they bring confidence to the members, and, and that is an allowance that is, is allowed for. It's okay for, that to be a, for there to be a process here, for there to be integrity, not just in the passion of the brothers for the members' health, but also integrity in the process of giving and the collection and the delivery. Now, thirdly and finally... We want to see integrity in our partnership. We want to see integrity in our partnership. There's some reciprocity here that is deserved. So so look at verses 22 through 24. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters. This word earnest appears many times in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Earnest in many matters, either in an adverbial or an adjectival usage. It appears many times. And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested, so the brother had been tested, and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. So so this brother is encouraged by the prospect of the Corinthians being faithful in their giving and faithful in all the ways that they've been called to repent by the letters of Paul. Verse 23, as for Titus, he is my partner and my synergos. There's a coffee brand in Louisville called Synergos. It's the Greek word here that is translated fellow worker. He's my fellow worker, my together laborer. It's a contract word. My partner and my fellow worker. Titus is a co-laborer with Paul. They are in lockstep for this thing, and it's for the benefit of the believers. For your benefit is the context of of leadership. That's one of the reasons that Danny read the Hebrews passage as our service leader today, is to show the reciprocity that needs to be there in a healthy church between the leadership and the members. There needs to be this, this, this trust and this interaction and this honorability and this openness to responsibility and fiduciary responsibility. These things need to be there. And so it's for their benefit. And Titus is his partner and they're sending other brothers. And here's what it says in verse 23b. As for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches. So they're, they're messengers or apostles with a little a of the churches. 
the glory of Christ. They bring honor to Christ. They're, what they're doing in their deportment, their integrity, their ethics, their behavior matching what they say, their word matching their deed, they are bringing glory to Christ through that process. It's not just an unnecessary thing to have process. But here, this partnership is built on the acceptance of a process and the passion of the brothers and sisters in the church for the things of Christ. So verse 24 kind of pulls it back into the exhortation of giving and the cheerful giving that's going to come next week. It says, so give proof before the churches of your love. Give proof. Give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Give proof of your partnership. Give proof that you're a fellow worker the same as we are. Give proof as we've bragged on you and had confidence in you. Give proof by being a generous giver, by being a person that can be described as having integrity in your passion and in your partnership for giving to meet ministry needs and to do the things that God has called us to do that we have agreed upon to do. And he wants them to be encouraged by taking an account of the proof that other churches can see too of their love. He, he, they have been givers. He's asking them to be givers again. The Corinthian church was a fairly well-off church, we think. And he wants them to be encouraged that it is more blessed to give than to receive. He wants them to be encouraged that their deeds have matched their words. He wants them to be encouraged that they're a part of this thing. He wants them to be encouraged that their concerns have been heard. He wants them to be encouraged that a famous preacher from amongst their midst is going to be taking the trip, taking the mission trip to Jerusalem and carrying the funds. He wants them to be encouraged in these relations inter church in the reason. All glory being to Christ alone. And so we kind of end today where we began. Our, our heart has an indicator switch, and it's our finances. Like, we have an indicator of where our treasure is based on how we, how we flow our finances. And I think it's very important that we have the integrity, not just of the partnership and the process and of the passion to examine those things, but also just the integrity to put them all together and to say, very tangibly, does, does my... Does my outflow of funds as I've received it, does it indicate some kind of predecided discipline? And does it indicate that I care about something besides myself? And that is a hugely important question for me and for you. Now, just to say, what, what do my financial, out, what does my finances say about me? What do they reflect about me? Uh, if you're married, me and my, my spouse, what do they reflect about me and us? In our home. Yeah. I, 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 this is not arm twisting. It's not an amount. It's not an appeal to make budget. It's none of those things. I'm saying, where's your heart? I said it last week. You know what? Budgets take care of themselves. When, when people just be faithful, then the church figures out what they're supposed to do. They figure out how to fund what they're supposed to do. Budgets take care of themselves. All budgets are is a reflection of what God's people decide to do, or they're not worth anything. They're just pieces of paper. It's about our heart. It's about our heart. What are we supposed to do? How are we going to fund it? What does my finances say about me? That's where we need to be with this, I do believe. And our covenant together says that we are going to be concerned with these things and that how we spend our money is not an innocent matter. It's important that we reflect upon these things together as God's people. Won't you bow your heads with me and pray? And I'll invite now our elders to come forward as well. Dear Heavenly Father, as we reflect on this text today, as your very words as grace to us to hear. Would you help us to know 
how to apply this specifically to our lives. Uh, there are people in my hearing that don't need to give another cent because they are, they're like Macedonians. They're already giving from their relative poverty and they're like the widow's might. So Lord, ease their tender conscience. There are people here, Lord, that know that they have been greedy in their actions and they know it and yet they're prideful and they really just, they don't want to move to the cheerfulness of giving. So Lord, keep them from giving until you can make them cheerful. No grudging gifts here. Help them to be cheerful. Move in their hearts in such a way that they can say, with great joy, wow, I got to be a part of that. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Uh, Lord, for the person that's here today and this just all seems like insider trading and talk in the middle of a shop that they've never worked in, would you help that person to see today that the gospel for them today is for their conversion? It's not coming with a handout or a request with a handout for money, but Lord, it's coming to them as a free gift from you for their salvation. And if they were to die tomorrow, the fact that they've never given a cent to a local church or to a missions agency or to the relief of the saints would not matter because their standing would be secure in you because of the fact that they've received the gospel for conversion because you've moved in their hearts in such a way that they would repent and believe the gospel. Help that person today to receive the gospel and to say, Lord, I want you in my life. I want to serve you and not myself. That's enough. So Lord, may we all be one at your table today. May there be no posturing. May there be no lack of integrity and sincerity. As gospel affirmers, may we have integrity in this project of the propagation of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're now going to take the Lord's Supper together.